Hi, welcome to the fifth episode of Huawei's Future of Finance series. My name is Colin Owls, and in this session, I talked to a surprisingly candid Lungisa Fasile, Standard Bank SA's CEO, to learn more about the future of banking. Now, I say surprisingly candid because it's not often you get a senior leader of an organization, especially a banking organization, talking so openly about the areas that worry them most. If you enjoy this episode, do check out colonals.com to find out all the details about both past and upcoming sessions. But first, let's hand over to Lungisa. To kick things off, I asked him to explain more about his background at National Treasury and how different he's found it to be working in the private sector. Enjoy. On the one hand, government is a creature of the constitution. Uh, some of its institutions are even um, defined and or established in terms of the constitution. It's a creature of law. Uh, and of course, it is inherently and decidedly a political animal, if you were to put it in singular. Um, it belongs to the people. It belongs to everyone. Um, you know, uh, those who, who voted for it and those who didn't vote for it, uh, but um, are, are citizens of the country uh, individually, collectively, uh, and, and of course, uh, some of them would be touristic persons. So the, the decisions in, in a government and decision-making processes are inherently consultative and it's understandable. That's what democracy is about. No one has got absolute power, uh, which tends to lead to, to abuse of, of, of power. On the other hand, if you take a bank, yes, we are established in terms of the law. We are a highly regulated industry, you know, because we take people's deposits, lifetime savings, uh, so we can't be allowed to, to gamble with it in irresponsible ways. Um, but we are owned by shareholders uh, and the shareholders uh, seek to maximize the value of their investments. But where you then begin to get similarities is in the sense that both government and the bank use people to achieve their, their ends. We, we employ people, what we do impacts people, and therefore that human touch in what we do, how we do it, uh, becomes, uh, becomes very important. And, and generally, the principles and tools of management are the same. The prevalence of the use of technology both in government and in, in a bank, uh, which is becoming very, very important uh, in a banking environment, is an inherent feature of the, the institutional setup. And perhaps I'll end by saying that, indeed, the use of data, the use of data in understanding current trends and being able to project into the future, is, is a common feature both in government, at least the part of government I served in, uh, the treasury that is, and in a bank. So uh, decisions that are based on rigorous analysis, uh, professional analysis of data, uh, and projecting the future and trying to understand how to anticipate it so that you position yourself, whether you are doing so in the in, in the instance of government to make sure that government, you know, is not uh, playing offside in the bigger system, but also in a bank to make sure that you remain relevant. <laughs> Something that I suspect we'll talk about a lot. You know, you remain relevant to the needs of your customers. Uh, yeah. You need to use data. And technology is a very powerful tool uh, in, in that process. It enables very quick elegant real-time analysis of data and, and projecting into the future. So 
good credentials then to go into into banking because in both cases it's not only consultative and having to go and assimilate large amounts of data to take decisions but you mentioned it before very forward-looking very futuristic in terms of whether it be designing policy or sitting there thinking about the business plans for standard bank over the next four or five years and, and i suppose the the first question which you must have been thinking about a lot over the last numbers of years is exactly what types of threats are Standard Bank and other incumbent banks facing now? And, and what particularly are those threats going to materialize into over the next four or five years if you weren't to do anything particularly significant? We, we do face a number of threats. Um, I would say at the heart of what we're grappling with is um, making sure that we re remain uh, relevant to our clients, to our customers. In this uh, world of COVID, uh, the, the pandemic that many of us thought it was gonna come and go and become a thing of the past very quickly, but it seems to be pervasive. But it's also about becoming and staying relevant to our clients' needs in this digitizing and digitalizing world, as you, as you said earlier in a context where regulators across the African continent, but in particular in our case, our primary regulators as in the National Treasury, the Saab and many others, are clear about lowering the barriers to entry in, in our system uh, in terms of just how they are setting regulations to make sure that uh, it's not nearly impossible for new entrants to come in, but it is still hard. I mean, banking is a, and financial services uh, is an inherently highly regulated sector the world over. It's not unique to South Africa and, and their continent and our continent. So I'm saying that it's staying relevant and making sure that we are up to the game of fighting for our space and winning in the face of fintechs, big techs, uh, the fact that a lot of what we do in financial services, which used to be viewed as being very special, uh, you know, unique, it belonged with us and no one else, but there are slivers of that, that uh, others have been clever at fashioning themselves so that they can begin to chip at some of those, um, those uh, specialities uh, and therefore compete and contest those profit pools uh, with us. Which one uh, so worries you most, Lungisa? Which one? Because you know, that I, it's, you've got the FinTechs, so what companies we've never heard of, but within the space of two or three years, they materialize and, and start eroding typically uh, very, niche product streams, which when you add them up as a portfolio, it suddenly becomes the eating the elephant scenario. It's just there's lots of them eating elephants. Uh, then you've got the, the competitor banks, obviously, who are trying to compete in a, in a similar sorts of way. You've got the telcos that are starting to entering you know, the banking space, and they've got the advantage, I suppose, of huge distribution naturally because of their business models and the technologies um, that they provide. You've got the uh, the big techs, you know, your Facebooks and your Googles and your Amazons, who people are perennially worried about entering this market. Which one is the... or you know, the ones that really worry you the most, that give you sleepless nights and take up endless amounts of time in your strat sessions? The two that are at the top of the list. We worry about everyone, by the way, Colin. I don't want to leave anyone here with the illusion that there is a part of the world that we, we don't keep in check to make sure that we don't lose ground uh, because that would be, that would be foolhardy. We, we're watching everyone. But if you think about the incumbents, the banks that are that have everything that we have, so that, that have the strengths that we have, the special qualities that we have, uh, that have, that have uh, a customer base, that know how to comply with the regulations uh, of financial services, banking, insurance, and you name them, um, that are trusted by customers, that have got data on, on those customers, which then enables them to build on that uh, to pivot into other areas, they are at the top of the list. Because if they were to 
adapt quicker than us and offer our clients and new clients that enter the market uh, better propositions, then we would become irrelevant. Second, it's the 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 big techs, your 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 hyperscalers, and of course the the existing platform businesses, uh, your your Amazons, Googles, and the like. Because if you think about them, there are things that make them truly special that are in fact a, a futuristic, if you think about. And of course, they've got customers already, they have got data, and therefore they have the presence across many geographies where we operate, including here in SA and the continent. And they have the ability to insert themselves between us and our customers in a way where they could render us powerless uh, in the market and, and disintermediate us. Uh, and where we end up not having the primary contact with our customers. Uh, instead, we've got to go through them, uh, depend on them, uh, then, then we, would be, we would be in trouble. And of course, I'm not kind of dismissive of the new entrants. I mean, we have seen them the world over, but we've also seen them in South Africa. Your time bank, uh, Bank Zero, uh, Discovery Bank. And part of what makes them potent, the, the new entrants, is the fact that they don't have legacy. They didn't have to, for instance, comply with the regulations like we did, which required that we must have uh, points of presence across the length and breadth of the jurisdictions where we operated. It was the case in SA. And at that time, if you pause and think about it, it was understood that uh, a bank's accessibility required that there must be a branch within X kilometers from where people live. <laughs> but today, with digitization and digitalization, a bank is as far as uh, a person's smartphone. So, so they, they are born digital, and we have seen uh, some of them going and building a client base without having to set up branches and incur the costs that go with that. So they do have that advantage. But I do want to tell you that uh, we have got advantages of our own. I've enumerated some of them. Uh, the, the fact that we've been in this business, in our case, for over one and a half centuries, um, uh, counts for a hell of a lot. Uh, it means there is a lot that we know. There is a lot that we are known for by clients and trust where money is involved um, uh, becomes uh, exceedingly important and, and does play a, a particular role in cementing relationships. What's going to be key, rather than worrying about them uh, posing the risks that I've enumerated, which are real and present, is how quickly we can adapt, how quickly we can begin to pivot our own businesses and make them relevant into the future. Deal with the cost to serve, for example. Uh, legacy is legacy. Yes, it's there. We can't wish it away, but we can work with it to make sure that it is not an albatross uh, around our necks and uh, and erodes our competitiveness. And some so, of the so can we go? Let's let's go into that, shall we? Let, let's go into that and and. Um... Because uh, I find that fascinating. I think, you know, you know, and, and many people on the call know that I've got um, a long experience in banking. And it was never my experience that uh, it was particularly easy to be nimble and innovative. We just go back, you know, I don't know, 2008, 2009. Who's heard of Capitec? Bang. You know, biggest retail client base in South Africa. And I, and I think that the challenge is that when you get a startup, like you said, and you've got a regulator that's looking to reduce the barriers and a startup that goes in that's born native, born digital, using all the, you know, the latest innovation techniques. And as you said, they're able to take more risk. They're not systemically relevant um, for the population of South Africa at that point in time. So they can they can just be faster and more nimble. And so you've got this continual battle where as the incumbent, you've got the distribution and the brand. 
okay, which you want to hang on to, but you just need to be able to innovate fast enough where the innovative fintechs that are coming through aren't able to go and gain distribution. And I've always looked at most of the banks and thought it's incredibly difficult to get innovation and adaptability into those organizations. So now you're obviously doing a lot of work on trying to get that type of culture into Standard Bank, starting at the leadership team level. Could you just share some of the things that you're trying to do to, to get people to be more motivated, to be more innovative? Yes. Your, your observation about large established incumbent banks with a whole lot of legacy to deal with, uh, being uh, uh, relatively slow uh, is, is apt. But I think that over the recent past, and it even predates my joining the bank, I'm, I'm sort of finishing my fourth year now, there, there has been a realization if the incumbent banks, if Standard Bank in this case, doesn't adapt, doesn't make sure that despite legacy and everything, it begins to have systems, processes that are geared towards being nimble and competitive, then we will, we will first grow slowly, uh, second stop growing, and uh, next shrink and possibly get very, very small if we're lucky, uh, but possibly uh, disappear into the oblivion. We, that has been realized a long time ago. When I joined the bank, it had already embarked and was long way into executing its digitization strategy or journey. And that strategy off the back of massive investments um, uh, in, in, in core banking, for an example, and a few other things has meant that we are now in a better position to be faster, to be able to design uh, and launch solutions and features faster. And where we see some customer pain points, you know, revise uh, those features, uh, review and revise those features and adjust them accordingly. Let me use a, a, a one or two examples to illustrate how we have done this and how it is paying off. You may not have heard, but uh, uh, given just the attention you pay to the financial services sector, you would be aware that before we, we reconfigured our branch network, we digitized uh, about 10 services that previously necessitated that people must walk into a branch to get them. Uh, things like a statement, three-month statement, stamped, you had to go to a branch to get it so that you can prove that you are an income earner, you are responsible with managing your finances, your account is not in perpetual debit and stuff like that. Ten such things were digitized. That's quite important because it has changed how customers experience us as, call it an incumbent old bank, although we prefer to think of ourselves as a 159-year-old startup. Uh, you might find that uh, funny, but that's how we think of ourselves in our case. Now, off the back of the investments that we have had in our technology and the ways in which we have reorganized ourselves internally, we were able, uh, about two years or so ago, to launch an account that was in response to some of the incumbents chipping away at uh, what we call main market, the low-income segment. The account is called MIMO. It is cheap to, to, to have. People could then do KYC with all with it, uh, what's and all, in other words, uh, and, and onboard digitally. And beyond that, they could originate alone or uh, digitally. Now, with that, we did it fast, to your point about being nimble, and without a doubt, it is digital. I need not mention that. And think about what that has enabled. When COVID hit us, it meant that we were one of the not so many bands that were able to onboard people, have people open new accounts, have people uh, originate new loans, 
And I suspect, Colin, that it is because we have the MIMO account, amongst other things that we've done, some of which entail just the way we've managed uh, how we sell. It is on the back of that that you see the customer numbers ticking up as they were revealed uh, last week, Thursday. We're now sitting at 9.7 million clients in our consumer and high network base, a growth of 3% in the context where the economy is where it is, in the context where economic activity is where it is, and in the context where the movement of people as a result of lockdown uh, and, and so on is, is somewhat restrained. So I'm saying that nimbleness that you're talking about, we have shown practically that we can do it. We understand the imperative. And we have also demonstrated that it actually works to be nimble. Now, of course, we're a big bank. I am not suggesting that every aspect of our business, massive business, is as nimble as the picture I have painted. We know that, and we have worked already in certain parts to make us quicker, to take full advantage of technology, to make sure that we're fast, but at the same time, uh, make sure that we, we transform ourselves to offer real competition. To, to the new entrants. So a lot of the dependency that you have there is a mind shift change. And I, and I always think at a leadership level, you need that mind to, to sort of switch, to go from sort of maintaining and, and running and working in a standard approach to something which is a, is a bit more nimble and adaptive. And it's quite difficult sometimes for senior leaderships. But if I think about Standard Bank, there's some uh, great examples which are probably feeling from the outside in perspective, giving you the momentum. You've you've just said one of them. You've got examples in your estate where you have been quite nimble. I think Shift uh, is a really good example. I mean, I know it took a year and a half, two years to eventually get out, but the, the base product was built in three months, uh, which is exceptional for the value um, that that product offers. Chatting with uh, you know people like Rod Paul, he's been quite open and saying very much an outside-in approach at the executive level. Now looking to get inspirational ideas from people outside of banking, even outside of South Africa, you know, using resources and and um, innovators in, in places like I don't know MIT in the US, for example. So so you can see it's changing. But the the biggest one um, to actually go and cement this change that I've seen probably ever from Standard Bank was literally the announcements you made last week where you've laid it down and said you're moving into this platform banking uh, type arena. And I think when you say it publicly, you kind of force yourself to have to do something about it. So it was a very brave move from um, Sim. Could you talk through a little bit about what this platform banking thing actually is and, and what it means? Because I think it's huge. In reality, what was good about what happened last week is the fact that we were not making promises or, or announcing, announcing things that we are yet to do. I, I hope the world noticed, and it seems from the reportage that I saw, including the beautiful article you sent me last night by yourself, it just, they, there was a lot in what was announced Friday, which is about what we have already done or are busy doing, including, of course, naturally what we are about to do. It was the kind of a thing where you say, now we are ready to face the world and let them know what we are about um, uh, over the next while. Now, in a nutshell, in financial services in particular, platform business models are sort of what is increasingly shaping uh, how financial products are produced, how they are distributed, and how clients are actually uh, served. Uh, it's also about the realization that to remain relevant, we can't be obsessive about competing. In other words, not working with others, uh, just looking after our own selves. It's born out of a realization that sometimes within the four corners of the law, there are benefits to competing at times, but also cooperating at times. So there's this new uh, phrase 
that has uh, come up called coopetition. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, I've got to be careful speaking to a first English speaker that I don't, uh, but I didn't invent the word. Uh, it was uh, so beautifully said by someone uh, just uh, a little while ago to, to us as executives of the bank. So it's about the realization that to be relevant in the future, we have got to use our strengths to work with those who have got strengths that complement those of our own so that we can deliver better scale and better value to our clients and their clients. Where that value then that we co-create from combining our strengths is shared by all involved, including, by the way, our customers. That's what this uh, uh, platform uh, business that uh, Sim and, uh, and uh, my colleagues in our expo uh, unveiled uh, last week. Now we've so got a few is, examples we can get into those. This is significant because very to go so. from being very competitive to saying we're going to, you know, open up our platforms, which potentially A, can benefit competitors or new entrants, and uh, B, could potentially cannibalize your own products and services, but because by opening up a shop store, you're by, by definition, you're going to have to become, I suppose, lower margins and cheaper and more nimble in terms of the offerings, less friction that's there. It's, it's, it's going very much digital, which is going to erode perhaps some of the revenues coming through the branch. I mean, this is a bold you know, decision. How, how has that gone down with your investors and the other key stakeholders, you know, in, in terms of driving this forward? Because I can imagine there was a lot of discussion before this was announced. It would appear from the initial indications that it has gone down exceptionally well, Colin. Uh, I've referred to the, the reportage, uh, the, the reports that I read uh, last week. If you looked at the headlines of the, the, the business times of the weekend, uh, I think the article was by um, uh, Hilary Joffe uh, saying something to the effect that Standard Bank is going for growth. It, it, it's, it's the way to go about the business, Colin. It is the only way that we can make sure that, one, we remain relevant to our customers. Uh, two, ironic as it might sound, we have got to disrupt ourselves rather than in a way that we can manage or control uh, in other words, we, we, there are revenue streams that, you are right, we may have to give up, and we have begun that process, by the way, of giving up some revenues, because they, they just have lost legitimacy. You can no longer, in this digital world, justify those revenues, because uh, uh, people see them for what they are, given the digital uh, alternatives to, say, for instance, the physical channels. So when we do that ourselves, we understand what we're doing. You know, banking and financial services is a, a volumes game. If you can't master scale, you, you, you would be in trouble. It's a question of time. So what becoming this platform, what becoming this meta, metaphoric mall that Sim uh, so eloquently and elegantly talks about enables us to retain the customers that we have because they will feel that partnering with us throughout their life journeys makes life better for them. But it also creates this possibility that with our partners coming with their customer bases, coming with their strengths to co-create more value with us, uh, which value then makes life better and gives back some of the, that value to customers, both our own and those of our tenants in our proverbial mall, will keep us relevant, will allow us to have the scale we need uh, to remain profitable in the future. I don't think that the next decade or two is gonna rely on exclusivity. Others are out, we control this market, and therefore we've got pricing power. No, I think it's gonna rely a lot on, you've got something very special to offer, something of value to partners, to clients, and you approach life with a very open mind that you co-create things and are ready to share value equitably, share risks 
correspondingly, equitably, and of course, you are able to maintain scale and keep growing over the next while. That, that's what I think is, is gonna be the best business model over the next while. And our platform approach and ecosystem curation is gonna be the ticket to the game over the next while. What, what's happening on the branch side of things? This digitization, in theory, is moving you towards a model which is quite a high fixed cost, but a very low variable or marginal cost so that you can, if done well, add on 10, 100, 1,000, a million, 100 million customers, let's call them customers or subscribers, partners, whatever you want to phrase them as. But really you're talking about the technology stack is just being scaled to help that. It's not a people's game. On the other side, you've still got, I think it's around 35, 40,000, maybe a bit more uh, people working in Standard Bank, many of whom are in, in branches and positions which over the next decade might not be needed. This must be quite a, a difficult um, set of decision-making that you're going to have to go through as you cannibalize what we're doing. You're, I mean, you've already said, for example, I think uh, 25% of the stores have been removed effectively in square meterage over the last couple of years. Yes. Um, you, you know, I spoke about the, the services that we use to uh, provide only uh, at, um, at, a, at a branch. Which, uh, which we, we digitized uh, systematically. That allowed, by the way, and under the leadership of uh, Zueli and Funega uh, and myself in SA, it allowed us to reduce our square metrage, to shut down uh, over 100 branches uh, about two years ago. Uh, and that saved us enormous cost. And of course, that process of keeping on reducing our branch square metrage continues. But let me tell you something that uh, you may have uh, noticed uh, last week. One of the announcements that Sim and, and Funega made related to our partnership with Pick and Pay. What that partnership affords us, Colin, is that it enables Standard Bank, when it's fully executed, to have about 100 uh, points of presence. Uh, that will range in size. Uh, between six and 10 square meters with two people at each one of those uh, uh, points of presence, selling uh, a range of our products that are currently only available at a, at a branch. Of course, uh, uh, those who are digital savvy can, can always help themselves on the digital channels that are, are very uh, well designed to help them do that. Now, what that partnership affords us is the possibility then to relook again at our branch uh, network, at our distribution strategy, to say in the light of an option like this, because uh, a normal branch, uh, call it normal inverted commas, although it sounds abnormal when you look at the numbers, because a normal branch would range between 100 square meters and 300 square meters, right? Now compare that to six to 10. I don't need to even tell you the implied costs. <laughs> Uh, being a, a financial guy, you understand that uh, 10 square meters compared to 100, it's chalk and cheese. So immediately you can see that we will be able then to relook at our branch square metrage and reduce it considerably. That is part of dealing with legacy, but it's dealing with legacy in very elegant ways because it's not just shutting the branches, reducing points of presence, and potentially accessibility to customers. No, it is about saying, let's have a different way of being uh, available to customers, our own and the new ones that we want to acquire so that we can still service them in very convenient ways, in the way they prefer to be served, but this time at a much reduced cost than uh, we, we currently are or previously had. Uh, so, so we are making these adjustments. As they say, Rome was not built in one day, but we are aware that we don't have all the time in the world to make these adjustments. Hence, we are moving with speed uh, to keep uh, making them at every opportunity. So that's interesting. So we've got a set of programs there, which you could call it 
reducing your legacy debt. It's this it doesn't sound, you know, great, but it's more more than just people in branches. It's it's some of the technology that you've got that you're slowly wanting to eradicate, and and maybe ten or fifteen years in the future, you'll love to stop having to go and distribute cash around Africa, which is incredibly expensive to do. So slowly, you're you know moving these you know previously profitable distribution and technology models away as the market has moved. Then. Uh, we've got a new strategy about that's moving in through into the this platform banking space amongst other ideas that were presented uh, last week. We've got yourself and the rest of the leadership team going public about it to go and get support. We're seeing investors supporting it. So we've got some really good solid bases in for this transition that you're going through. But what about the types of skill sets that you need to bring in? Are you finding that, um, for example, there's a massive amount of technologists that you need to be bringing in with the relevant skill sets that it's actually just difficult to get hold of or you don't have them in. So you're you're having to work to try to bring in these new skills. And if you are finding that, how are you going on that journey? Because I'm continually being told that it's difficult to get that type of skill in South Africa. Colin, banks are, become, are decidedly becoming uh, high-tech businesses. <laughs> they are becoming really technology business. In fact, one of the changes that we have made is looking at the kinds of skills of what we call the future, not thinking about the skills of the past that, that were relevant to banking. So engineers, we are employing them uh, in large numbers, uh, data scientists, in very large numbers, uh, behavioral scientists also in large numbers, uh, and, and a few other skills that are becoming relevant to who we are becoming and, and our aspiration. First point. But what is even more important, and I'm sure uh, people would understand, is then what do you do with them once they are inside the business? Where do you locate them? Do you get top-notch engineers and then put them in what we used to call the back office? If you do that, you would have your own self to blame when they leave you because they won't find that exciting and, and as fulfilling as the model that we're following at Standard Bank, which is to put the engineers with the teams that are facing clients with the teams that are designing solutions with and for the clients. Because what you don't want is that there is a client-facing team. They talk to the people who want solutions from us. And then those get translated for the engineering guys uh, in a back office of olden days. That won't cut it. We, we, we've changed that totally. Hence, in our case, internally, we have put those capabilities uh, of engineering and operations and real estate together. There is logic to that. There is method to it. And we consider them to be part of the front-facing, uh, client-facing teams so that there are no handovers. They are part of designing. They are part of interacting with, uh, with customers. The, the head of engineering, and operations and, and real estate in South Africa is a very enthusiastic and energetic gentleman. Uh, some people on this call might know, Kumuso um, Mulabe. And he, he jokes with me often and he says, he talks to clients sometimes more than many of us who consider ourselves front-facing. And he's correct about it, he does. Because the solutions that the team he leads for us design for the clients, it's done with the client. So he interfaces uh, with the client. So you are, you are so right. We've got to get the right skills, uh, skills of the future, as we sometimes call them. We've got to organize ourselves internally with those skills such that those people feel and understand their place in the business, in the servicing of our customers. And of course, we are able to retain them. Uh, over the next while, because keeping them is going to be the key. Because the competition for such skills is is so keen, it's cutthroat in this market. 
How much freedom are you uh, are giving these guys? Because, you know, a, a typical conversation is I've got this great idea. We're really keen on building, oh, I don't know, um, something like the next transfer wise, you know, so we can do instant cross border or we're going to go and build something where it's um, a bit like uh, Zillow in the US, where we're just going to have this wonderful platform to check out house prices and, and set up a really easy way for people to go and, and buy and sell and, and transact in some way. And they're really super excited about it until they talk to the system architects and the leadership teams that go, great, it's a lovely idea. Now, please plug it into this existing architecture that we've spent billions on and is sitting on our balance sheet. And we really don't want you going open source or to third parties or making your own uh, kind of skunk works out there. And the whole thing just dies, not because the idea was poor, it just suddenly becomes a five-year project. H how are you stopping that from happening? Because it's so entrenched in a lot of large organizations. No, we, we have stopped it. Uh, uh, Colin. In fact, I, I I will be very brief and direct because you are asked a, you have asked a very apt question. Anything that can be made by others quicker and better than we make it, we buy it from those who can make it quicker, cheaply, uh, and of course we plug it in. Hence the importance of APRs. Uh, so so we have got no illusions of uh, suffering from the grandiose of. Uh, owning it all, uh, designing and developing it all. Uh, no, no, we don't. That's not how we approach life. It's impractical. Uh, it is costly uh, and, and it slows us down. So we can't afford that. Um, that's the importance of partnerships. It's about anything that we are not good at, uh, we are not efficient at. Uh, it's not our strong point. Uh, if there is a partner, a willing partner out there that shares a couple of uh, things with us, uh, culturally and otherwise, uh, bring them on board, partner with them, combine our strength with those of theirs, uh, and, and uh, get on with the business of saving our plus customers as efficiently as possible and as cheaply as possible. Many of the solutions, uh, the platforms that were announced last week, Thrive for cash, look see for, for home services, uh, shift, which you spoke so eloquently about, which is for buying and selling uh, foreign exchange, but also now, more recently, it has been enhanced to enable people to buy and sell shares uh, of listed uh, companies, including in the, JS, in the uh, New York Stock Exchange, pardon me. I'm saying we wouldn't have been able to do a lot of those things if we were too exclusive and inward looking. But you also raise a very important point. When you get good people in your business, clever young people, engineers, data scientists, if you suffocate them by, uh, and not give them the space to think freely and, and try things out within boundaries, of course, because we work with people's money, we can't lose too much uh, too quickly, uh, that will that will cause us problems. We we really wouldn't have been able to achieve the things that we announced last week had we not evolved our culture as an institution to accommodate for these uh, very young and energetic people who understand the most relevant. Uh, portions of our market, the youth, the millennials, so to speak, uh, to really have a free reign within reasonable governance uh, processes to, to experiment. That's what we're doing at Standard Bank. Now, we can't have a conversation like this without mentioning crypto, particularly with your background. And a good question here from Nasir. What is your crypto strategy or your digital currency strategy? And then I want to extend you know, on that uh, if we get time, depending on how your answer goes. Crypto and uh, innovations such as uh, uh, blockchain and a whole lot of new things that have entered our space are important. They have relevance. Uh, they serve a purpose. What is great in our case is that our primary regulators in the Treasury and the SAR are, are very modernizing 
even if I have to say so myself, speaking about my former colleagues, uh, forgive me, but, but I think they are. They happen to be plugged in in international forums, G20, uh, the Basel processes that are at the cutting edge of how the financial services industry globally has got to be regulated. Just given its interconnectedness, uh, you can't, you know, we are as strong as the financial, as the global financial system, as the weakest part of it. So there is a sense in which we are fortunate in the sense that they are at the cutting edge of these things. And indeed, uh, they, they are quite advanced in thinking about cryptocurrency or crypto assets. Uh, just uh, uh, in the first half of this year, they released uh, the sub uh, and they released a paper on, on crypto assets and, and, and stuff like that. And we are sinking our teeth in that. We, we want to be, uh, I would call it fast followers on such matters. We don't want to be at the forefront uh, leading uh, because these are new evolutions, new developments. They are not sufficiently well known and understood by all involved. They also, by the way, interestingly, um, the regulators themselves are still trying to wrap their policy heads around these. They do want to make sure that they understand them very well. They understand the risk, they understand rather, the risk, risks associated with them, and therefore can calibrate policies and regulations to offer sufficient protections uh, to those who, who, who play uh, in those spaces and with those kinds of uh, assets and instruments. So, uh, you would have sensed a bit of vagueness in what I said. I'm saying to you, we understand they exist. They are a reality of this world. We also, there are risks that we understand that are associated with them. There are also risks that we don't understand. And I think that the same is true of our regulators in that regard. And of course, then we've got to make sure that we don't run too far ahead of our regulators because if we were to do so and expose ourselves and, of course, our customers unwittingly to undue risks, uh, the consequences could be dire. People could ask the question, what were you thinking? But at the same time, we can't be left behind on that journey. We just have to place ourselves in such a position that when the time is right to really expose our clients and let them participate and help them participate, uh, in, in investing in crypto assets, we are ready to do that, but we can't be the first ones to expose them before we understand how the regulators are dealing, for instance, with things such as uh, money laundering as it pertains to, to, to cryptocurrencies, you know, terrorist financing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, my experience, the regulators have always been quite willing to go and look. Well, I suppose it depends which regulator you're talking about. We won't mention specific regulators, um, but they have had incredibly intelligent people, the ones I've dealt with, who are looking at these pieces. On this one, I'm just wondering uh, whether they couldn't be going a little bit faster. For example, we haven't seen them um, mandate the banks to move into open banking and to set up open API architectures like you've seen over in, in Europe. And, and I haven't heard too much in terms of really, you know, things like driving um, inclusion-based banking to go and force structures in place where it's free data, you know, free transactions to go and try to bring the 15, 20 million people who aren't really using banking and financial services onto, you know, these types of platforms. You, do you think we can see them accelerate a bit more in these spaces? You know, let's get a stable coin out in the next one or two years, potentially, which people can start to use and grapple with. Oh, without a doubt. You know, Colin, if you were inside banking, you would sometimes worry. I, I've, I've heard this uh, uh, whisper where, where sometimes as colleagues, we share amongst ourselves the fact that uh, sometimes our regulators are moving too fast. <laughs> and I'm not talking specifically in relation to cryptocurrencies or crypto assets, uh, please understand me. There are instances where we feel that our, our regulators are actually moving with the, the, the leaders, uh, uh, for instance, in implementing some of the Basel uh, reforms. 
Now, where am I getting to with this point? I have said earlier on in this conversation that I think that both the Treasury and the SAP as the main regulators, you can even add the FSCA there. They really, really are modernizers, Colin. They are, they are always at the forefront of, uh, of uh, regulatory reforms that are aimed at making sure that uh, South African banks and financial services are not left behind. I mean, I've been amazed uh, at how receptive they have been. Uh, I didn't go with SIM, for instance, to just, we had to present this uh, strategic uh, uh, shift that uh, we announced last week. They received it very well. They, they assist with us in conversations, as I was saying, on cryptocurrencies. They are in conversations with us on open uh, banking. They are. They are thinking about it. But what I like about them is that they are also cautious. They do understand that we are a key financial, a key part of the financial system of our African continent. And we, we cannot move in ways that regulate the financial services sector such that it ceases to be appropriately regulated for the entire continent. Take our bank, for an example, which has a presence in 20 geographies on the continent. We, we can't ignore the fact that we are a bank that is uh, you know, the biggest in the continent, serves the largest economies on this continent. So we've got to always just calibrate uh, the, the regulations such that um, we don't leave any part of, of the system uh, we serve behind. So they have not paid me to, to defend them like this. Uh, this is how I've experienced them. But I will confess that I'm not sufficiently objective when it comes to expressing a view on, on the Treasury and the SAP just given who I am and the history I've had. Thank you, Longisa. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of my interviews with business leaders from around the world by going to my website, colinisles.com, or searching for Inside Track with Colin Isles on Spotify, Apple, Google, and of course, Audible. Uh, next up, next month, I'll be interviewing Discovery Bank's CEO, Hilton Kauner, attempting to learn more about their behavioral banking model. And we'll also be digging into what it is they're doing to inculcate a culture that embraces innovation and experimentation. I'm looking forward to this one because, in all honesty, innovation and experimentation isn't something you normally associate with a bank. If you want to join that event, again, you can go and find out more about it on my website, colonisles.com. You'll be able to just go to the events page and, and sign up and subscribe there. Until then, I wish you well and do stay safe. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.